If you still have your Bibles handy, would you please turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 15 is our main text. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. The last time I spoke uh, on the book of Colossians, we looked at the first chapter of the book of Colossians and studied yet another aspect of the preeminence or the supremacy of Christ in relation to his work, specifically his work as mediator between God and man and his indwelling of all believers in verses 20 to 27 of chapter 1. And after the Apostle Paul had carefully expounded some important doctrines concerning the person and work of Christ, he proceeded to point out the importance of the ministry which God had called him to. And we observed four specific aspects of his ministry. Number one, he was an authorized minister of the gospel chosen of God, verse 25 in chapter 1. Secondly, he was a suffering minister of the gospel, verse 24. Affliction, suffering, and persecution were quite familiar elements to the Apostle Paul. Third, he was a complete minister of the gospel, as we saw in verses 26 to 27, disclosing the full counsel of God, never watering down any aspect of the message. And finally, number four, he was a faithful minister of the gospel, we saw in verses 28 to 29, right to the very end, paying with his own life. <clears throat> but now we come to the second chapter of the book of Colossians, and in this section we get a good look at a true shepherd's heart for his flock. And we see that it is a threefold role. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, that if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. But God the Holy Spirit never works against his word. There are certain biblical standards which first must be met, without which no man can become an elder. Now, we don't have time or occasion to go into all of those qualifications presented in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. But what I would like to do instead is to look at Paul's example as the model shepherd of his flock. As we all know, there is but one true shepherd, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. However, in his physical absence, he has called under shepherds to care for his flock. 
And if he has really called them, then they shall all have three common characteristics. Number one, a divinely appointed shepherd will feed the flock. That is, will teach the word of God faithfully. Number two, he will lead the flock. And that is always by example, never lording it over his flock. And number three, he will protect the flock. From what? From wolves in sheep's clothing, from false teaching, false doctrines. And the Apostle Paul certainly did all of that. In all of his epistles, we catch a glimpse of this threefold ministry or role. In Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul begins by feeding the flock, always feeding the flock on the marvelous truths of God's word. Here in particular, it was the great eternal truths concerning the person, works, and deity of Christ. In Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul reveals the second aspect of his role as shepherd, and that is leading the flock. He always led by example. His life and his doctrine were one and the same. He preached what he lived, and he lived what he preached. And then also in Colossians 2, he also protects the flock, by warning them against false doctrine and false teachers. A threefold ministry and role. One, to feed the flock. Two, to lead the flock. And three, to protect the flock. Let's look more closely now at our main text for this morning. Colossians chapter 2. We'll look at verses 1 to 8 as our first major division. And so I've entitled this particular section, The Apostles' Care for the Church. And this first point is his conflict for the church. Conflict for the church, Colossians 2 verse 1. For I would that ye know what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. He begins by expressing his great conflict for them, even though he has never met them face to face, aside from Epaphras, Onesimus, and Philemon. Paul's agony for them is great nonetheless. He was constantly concerned over all of God's flock for their spiritual welfare and for their fruit. He wanted them to know that he was in agony over them, that he travailed for them in prayer regularly. For he realized that whenever the truth of God was called to question, there was always a great danger that the people of God might be corrupted by false teachers bringing in false doctrines, and that would turn them aside from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. 
Paul took the word of God, the truth of God, very seriously. His soul was in agony when his blessed Lord and Savior was dishonored by those who called themselves Christians. The apostle was not easygoing in relation to truth versus error. He was not tolerant of any teaching just to maintain outward unity. Paul realized better than anyone else that it is the truth that unites, but error that divides. His fear, not only for those at Colossae, but also for those at Laodicea, was that false teachers, seducers, wolves in sheep's clothing, would come and seduce the saints from their first love from Christ himself. And so this conflict, which he experienced on their behalf, because of his love for them and for his Savior, he wanted them to know. Oh, if only we had more shepherds like that today. And now we come to the second point, which I've entitled, The Apostles' Concern for the Church. Chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. Paul's earnest desire for this body of believers at Colossae was their spiritual welfare. He does not pray for their health, for their happiness or fortune or prosperity, as nice as that might be, but rather his prayer and his desire is that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ in uh, verses uh, two, to, 2 to 4. He desired rather that their souls might prosper. And how does the soul prosper? When our knowledge, when our spiritual knowledge of God grows to an understanding of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, when we have a more clear, distinct, and working knowledge of the truth as it is in Christ Jesus, then the soul prospers. The mystery of God is that which he has revealed regarding Christ as head of the body and consequently head of the new creation. And as believers enter into the truth of this, they are set free from vain speculations because all perfection is found in Christ. And as the believers start to understand the wealth of this great mystery, they begin to enjoy the full assurance of understanding in their heart's acknowledgement. With the full assurance of understanding and with full assurance of hope and with full assurance of faith, the soul is set free from doubt and fear and therefore it prospers. For it is in Christ that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. 
It is not necessary for the believer to look elsewhere. The believer needs not to go to philosophies and other human systems for answers or explanations to the mystery of the universe and the relations between the creator and his creatures. These are all fully explained in Christ. And as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our blessed Savior, as we learn to know him better and grasp the truths concerning him, all questions are answered. Every perplexity is clarified and doubt begins to disappear. And as we grow in this fashion, we begin to realize that no amount of human wisdom or intellect or genius can ever take the place of divine revelation. Notice, please, verse 3. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It does not say that the treasures are hidden from us, but rather it says for us in Christ. Those who wish to be wise and knowledgeable must receive Christ, must turn to him, search in him and draw from him the treasures which are hidden in him. He is the wisdom of God. And so the apostles desire or concern for the church here in verse 2 is that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love. The more intimate communion we have with fellow believers, then the more our soul prospers. Godly love knits the hearts of Christians one to another. And as our faith increases by the preaching and the hearing of the word, faith combines with love and they both contribute to our comfort. The stronger our faith becomes, the warmer our love becomes, and the greater will be our comfort. This now brings us to the third point in the Apostles' care for the church, his caution. The Apostles' care for the church is not only shown in his conflict and concern for the flock, but also in his caution for the church. Chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. The Apostle Paul cautions this church against those who would beguile them with enticing words. There are those who seek to deceive others. It has always been thus. The sin nature in man always seeks self-interest, self-glory at the expense of others. All through scripture we see the wicked one planting his seed amongst the true seed the tares amongst the wheat. And the purpose is always the same, to destroy the people of God, to lure them from the Lord who purchased them. 
Satan's method is always the same, enticing words. Remember Genesis 3, verses 1 to 5. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Enticing words, seducing words, words that seem irresistible. Do men still use enticing words today to seduce others? Why, yes, indeed. And why is that? Because enticing words work so well. There is no safeguard against them outside the revealed word of God. We see all around us today the results or the fruits of enticing words. A world divided by hatred and fear, shattered by war and longing for peace and comfort. And yet, in spite of all of their misery, the world will not turn to Christ. But before the Apostle Paul becomes more specific about enticing words in verse 8, he counsels the church to confidence in Christ. Which brings us to the fourth point under his care for the church, his counsel for the church, Colossians 2, 5 to 7. Paul encourages the church in these next few verses to have confidence in Christ. He reminds them that although he is not with them there physically, he is with them there in spirit. Be steadfast in your faith in Christ, he urges. When fears and doubts and enticing words assail us, we should be steadfast and unmovable in Christ. It is the wavering man that loses his confidence and his way. If we have found the way, the truth, and the life, therein should we rest. He then stirs afresh their minds as to how they began. They began by receiving Christ. They received him as the Holy One of God, the one sent from heaven as the sacrificial Lamb of God, the one who was born of a virgin, was perfectly sinless, fully God and fully man, who went to the cross of Calvary, and nailed the sins of the world to that cross, died, and was buried, and after three days arose from the dead. This was the one who was seen by many 
and then ascended into heaven where he is now seated on the right hand of God the Father, calling out for himself the church, and now intercedes for them daily. And so says the apostle, if this be so, if you have received Christ as Savior from your sins and wrath, then says Paul, walk in Christ. That is how they are to continue. They are to walk in Christ. He is to be their light. He is to be their bread. He is to be their hope. If Christ be their wisdom, their spiritual food, and their eternal hope, why would they then turn to anything else or anyone else? Paul counsels them, therefore, to be established in Christ. That is how they are to be founded. That is their foundation, Christ alone. They are to be rooted in him and built up in him, verse 7. And if that be the case, then they will be established or solidly founded in the faith, the Christian faith. Just as a tree strikes its roots deep into the earth, so too our faith should strike deep into the doctrines concerning the Savior. And if that be so, then we will abound with thanksgiving to God. And that will also be our strength. For Nehemiah 8 verse 10 reminds us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And this strength cannot be affected by changing circumstances nor time, because these precious truths are unchangeable, and we are rooted in them. And then, in verse 8, the Apostle Paul specifically mentions the first of a series of false teachings creeping into the churches at that time. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Beware, he says, of philosophies and vain deceit. These are the two spoilers of mankind. And they also spoil or rob the true believer sometimes of his treasure. The two branches of philosophy which were prominent in Greece at the time of this epistle were Stoicism and Epicureanism. Stoicism said, live nobly and death cannot matter. Hold appetite in check. Become indifferent to changing conditions. Be not uplifted by good fortune, nor cast down by adversity. The man is more than circumstances. The soul is greater than the universe. Or in other words, as the British might say, a stiff upper lip, old chap, no matter what happens. Epicureanism, on the other hand, said, all is uncertain. 
We don't know where we came from or where we are going to. We only know that we're here for a brief moment of time, so let's make the best of our time. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Acts 17, verses 16 to 21, mentions these philosophies. But there were also lesser philosophies being taught. For the Greeks were noted for their great thinkers. But no matter how great or wonderful these thoughts may have appeared to men, in comparison to the revelation of God, they were destructive to the people of God. Because these philosophies were false and tended to rob believers of the truth. They drew men after men and not after Christ. And we can see that all around us today, how the philosophy of our day and vain deceit is drawing men away from Christ. We see it in our schools with evolution versus creation. We see it in our medical and social fields, how psychology and parapsychology are the great emerging philosophies of our day. We see it in the churches as well, liberation theology, kingdom theology, and so-called Christian psychology. It is all around us. But all of these philosophies are after the tradition of men. There is such a thing as a philosophy which is vain and deceitful, which is prejudicial to true religion because it sets up the wisdom of man in competition with the wisdom of God. And while it pleases men's fancies, it ruins their faith. I have come across many examples of men ruined by these philosophies, men who were once ministers of the gospel, there was one in particular who was a minister in the Presbyterian Church who told me that he was still a Christian, even though he did not believe in the virgin birth or that Christ was baptized by immersion in the Jordan River. These things, he said, did not take away from his faith. Another one who was a United Church minister said that he was a Christian too, that he believed that Christ was the only way for him, but that he did not want to limit God, and that God certainly could use Islam, Hinduism, and other religions as the road to salvation for others. Both men later suffered broken homes and divorced families. The phrase, after the rudiments of the world, refers to the way the Jews learned. The Jews governed themselves by the tradition of their elders and the rudiments of the world, the rites, the observances, which were only preparatory and introductory to the gospel state. The Gentiles, on the other hand, mixed their precepts of philosophy with their Christian principles. 
And as a result, both alienated their minds from Christ. In the following verses, we get a much better idea who these deceivers were. They were the Jewish teachers who endeavored to keep the law of Moses in conjunction with the gospel of Christ. But what they were really doing was they were competing with the gospel and contradicting the gospel. And so Paul prepares to show in the next section how Christ has fully met the holy demands of the law, the ceremonial law, thereby abolishing it all once and for all. And since we as believers are in Christ, we are complete in him and have no need of any law. Thus, in verses 9 to 15, Paul concentrates now on the believer's completeness in Christ. We are complete in him, verse 10. We are complete in Christ Jesus. All that we need to secure our salvation fully is found in Christ. There is nothing left or wanting outside of Christ. Number one, in Christ is all the wisdom necessary to guide us. Two, in Christ is the complete atonement for sin. Number three, in Christ is the full merit by which the sinner can be justified. Number four, in Christ is all the grace necessary to sustain us through trials and tribulations and to help us in our duties. This is the one whom the 10th verse says is the head of all principalities and power. Peter refers to him in much the same way when he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. And in Ephesians 1, 20 to 21, the Apostle Paul gives the same idea in more detail, saying that the Father raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world which is to come. And so the Apostle Paul summarizes here in Colossians verses 10 to 11, that the Christian is complete in Christ because, one, we are circumcised with the only kind of circumcision that counts, spiritual circumcision. Physical circumcision was an ordinance which symbolized the cutting off of all sin and the renouncing of it, and that the one who was circumcised was to be devoted to God and to a holy life. But for the Christian, all this was obtained by the gospel through Christ. And so, spiritually, we have been enabled by Christ 
to renounce sin and to devote ourselves to God. And secondly, we are complete in Christ as well because we are buried with him in baptism and risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. Verse 12, who hath raised him from the dead. It is through faith that we have reckoned ourselves dead to the old self. We have died in Christ's death. The old man has been put to death. But we, through faith, are also risen with Christ to a newness of life. This brings to mind that wonderful passage in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The law or handwriting of ordinances that was against us, verse 14, is canceled, finished, because it was nailed to the cross by Christ. It can never hold us accountable ever again, once we have been justified in Christ. When the Savior died on that cruel, cursed cross of Calvary, Pilate had the inscription placed above the head of our Savior in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So when the people saw the charge, they understood that he was being crucified because he made himself king and was thus disloyal to Caesar. But when God looked upon that cross, his old holy eye saw only the holy law of Mount Sinai. It was because this holy law was broken in every point that the blood of Jesus had to be shed. Divine justice was met. Christ was the end of the law to everyone that believeth. We are now, as believers in Christ, free from the law. And finally, number three, we are complete in him through his victory. Verse 15. We have victory over the enemy, Satan and all his powers of darkness, because in Christ we are victorious. Ephesians 2, 6-7 tells us, And hath raised us up together, and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. After Christ defeated the powers of darkness and made a show of them openly, verse 15, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. We are told in Hebrews 1.3 and in 1 Peter 3.22. And though experientially we do not enjoy that state presently yet, we do have it positionally now in Christ. 
Therefore, with all of these things in mind, with all of these blessings in Christ, what need could we possibly fulfill by falling back into rites and rituals made by men is the implication. We don't have time to go in much further, so we will just stop right here, and Lord willing, we'll continue with the rest of these passages. But now, before I step down, I need to ask you this solemn question. Are you in Christ today? Have you repented of your sins and turned to Christ for the complete forgiveness of all of your sins? If you haven't or are not sure, won't you do so now? Repent from your sins. Acknowledge that you have offended a holy and a righteous God and that you can do nothing to save yourself. Christ alone can save you. Believe on him today and be saved. He will not turn you away if you come to him by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee so much for this precious book of Colossians and how clearly the Apostle Paul outlined for us the supremacy of our blessed Savior. What else do we need if we have him? Part us now with thy blessing, we pray, and if the Lord be not come, may it please thee once again to bring us together round his table, for we ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.